So if you say that I'm first a reader and then I'm a critic, you get to be both a critic and a reader. If, however, you exchange that relationship and what should be secondary, being a critic, becomes your primary, you miss the experience of being a reader. Your imagination doesn't ever become formed because you stay in that realm of the intellect. We're always judging and discerning and not really accepting what is there and loving what is there. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Jessica Hooten Wilson is the Seaver College Scholar of Liberal Arts at Pepperdine University. She's the author of many books, the most recent of which is Reading for the Love of God, How to Read as a Spiritual Practice. In this episode, Dr. Hooten Wilson and I talk about the difference between using a book and enjoying a book. We discuss a Trinitarian vision of reading. We discuss literal, figurative, moral, and anagogical meanings of a text. Also, we talk about Julian of Norwich. There's a lot going on in this conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. Jessica Hooten Wilson, I'm so glad to have you on the Habit Podcast today. Thanks for being here. I love hanging out and talking to you. I'm excited about your new book, uh, Reading for the Love of God, How to Read as a Spiritual Practice. What do you mean by reading as a spiritual practice? Tell me about that. Well, when I started reading, I just assumed that that was part of it for a long time. I always read because to me, it showed me things about who God was, who I was, what the world was like. And I realized in 17 years of teaching almost every semester, that was not the case with students coming into my classroom. So I would start recrafting my classes. It didn't matter what I was teaching. If I was teaching Solzhenitsyn or Flannery O'Connor, you know, or Dante, whatever I was teaching, I had to change the paradigm of my students that this was not about reading for a grade, reading to get the right answer. Instead, it was, what can I learn from this? How can this book read me? How can I love God more through the reading in this class? And so I started developing some practices to show students how to do that. And then I just wrote them all down and put them in this book. Uh, Use the phrase, how can this book read me? What does that mean? How can you stand under it and let it judge you for where you are and what what you are and who you are? So, for example, instead of standing over it and kind of just pulling out from a book what you want, Uh letting things that challenge you or show things about you that maybe you weren't ready to see or are not comfortable seeing, letting the book have that process, right? Having the humility before the book to let it do that to you. Mm. Okay. So it sounds a little bit like experiment and criticism. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, if I had one hero, it would be Lewis. But of course, then Lewis is imitating Augustine's De Doctrina. So in a sense, I just kind of find myself, if anybody knows that history of ideas, that's where I'm trying to be is I'm trying to rewrite Lewis in a way that isn't 1960s British accent, but 20th century, (laughs) 21st century American voice with the same kinds of questions and ideas. Yeah. Um, you, before we, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about the, the academic world. Um, and I, I think it's relevant, maybe this idea of us standing over the text and doing to the text, what we want to do to it is pretty typical in the academic mm-hmm. setting. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and that obviously clearly that's that's something that you are militating against in this book and in your work as a as a teacher. 
Right. Well, I think it's something that you're trained to do in the academy, but I think even when you're not trained to do it in the academy, you're trained to do it in the world by mm. advertising, by social media, right? That you are the judge of the things that you read. You are the judge of the things that you see. And instead, devotional practices or looking out throughout church history never started with that premise. Mm. It was always the text was higher. These things that have lasted longer than you matter mm -hmm. more mm -hmm. and they can actually make your life a good life if you let them read you and you respond to them correctly. Yeah. I'm interested. I, it hadn't occurred to me to think in terms of marketing, the, the, the world of marketing, putting us in this position of being not good readers. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell me a little more about that? Sure. So you and I love Flannery. And one of my favorite essays is when Flannery says, who speaks for America today? You know, she's responding to that life article and she says it's the advertising agencies. Mm -hmm. And what she means by that is we think all the time we've been convinced by advertising that we are our own person. We're writing our own story. And that's what the advertisers want us to, to see of ourselves. But instead, we're just buying what they tell us to. And yeah. we're, we're watching the movies that they sell the best to us. And we're being culturally shaped and our imaginations are being shaped by what everybody is telling us to be shaped by yeah. rather than of course the pro process of the church is more laying yourself down, humbling yourself before things that are bigger and uh, yeah. that will change how your imagination is formed. Yeah. It's, it's such a, it's such a, a um, paradox the way maybe it's the paradox may, may not be the word I'm looking for, but the way advertising convinces you that something that, that it's my desire for this thing is coming from inside me when in fact it's been, it's been put inside, it's been put in me from outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you, and you just really hit the nail on the head with the, uh, the word desire, right? Like so much of the either academic enterprise or something is getting us to live inside our minds and think that when we're reading, it's all about what our heads are doing, what our minds are doing. And instead advertising is smarter <laughs> in yeah. a sense, because it tries to move our hearts with certain ways of showing things ways of messaging, ways to make things sound. And and film does this really well too. Well, I, I think that if we're well formed by certain stories and poetry and those sounds and those images, we'll be able to fight off some of that manipulation from, from other sources. Yeah, that's interesting. So if if we're when you talk about a book reading me, mm -hmm. is marketing language reading me or what's what's going on there am, am i submitting to that in a way that i'm not submitting to a book i should be submitting what's so, help me out here yeah sure so marketing is catering to what it is that you think that you want already right it's it's usually feeding the lowest thing within you it's 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 speaking to your gut more often than not. It's the easiest thing to speak to someone is to already tell them what they think they want, right? Okay. And so advertising does that. Uh -huh. Most books, good books, I, and I, I clarify this in my book about what makes a good book or a great book, but good books, great books, those are the books that they're not catering to their audience's desires. Mm. They're speaking about truth in a way that may challenge their audience. Uh -huh. And that's what I mean by reading them again, to just quote Flannery, right? She says, um, self-knowledge begins when you see the truth and you judge yourself by what you're not yet, right? Like that the truth is higher than who you are and you have a place to reach towards. So the yeah. best books do that as well. They give you this reflection that looks at you and says, you're not exactly how you're supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. 
And there's a reality that you didn't make and you might need to conform yourself to that reality. Absolutely. Abolition of man. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't mean to be uh, paraphrasing the abolition of man, but. You did. You just quoted C.S. Lewis. It's right so on. <laughs> um, tell me about the difference between using a book and enjoying a book. Well, let me define enjoying because I think too often people confuse it with pleasure or pleasure seeking, okay. right? I'm, I'm talking about a higher sense. I'm using it from Augustine and talking about enjoy as in like the highest form. Again, to quote Lewis, like thinking through surprise by joy, where he talks about joy is that inclination for something that's beyond us. Mm -hmm. So when I'm talking about enjoying, it's that process of um of going outside of yourself and not using what's in front of you for yourself. That would be the difference. So when you use something for pleasure, you're not enjoying it. You're using it. Now, wait a minute. The the Coke ads <laughs> specifically say enjoy Coca-Cola. <laughs> exactly. Like it's a misuse of the, of the language <laughs> to get us to be convinced that these are the things that we're doing. We're enjoying something. Um, when in reality, most most of the time we're just using things for pleasure or we're using things for entertainment. I want us to think about books more like we think about people. Okay. And so you get to know a friend not to use them, right? If you're using a friend, they're not really a friend mm -hmm. right? if you're using a person. And I think with books, it's the same thing. You want to enjoy them for what they show you to be true. Like, how do you love your neighbor in such a way that it leads you to the love of God or that that neighbor loves you in such a way that they lead you toward the love of God. And that's what Augustine would say is that, that people like books, like great art can be this as well, can be both used and enjoyed, but the only use of them is to enjoy God. <laughs> so there's like one singular use for great art and, and people is to be used for the love of God. And that's enjoyment. That's not using. So the ultimate thing to only be enjoyed, so that he gives three categories. So I'll just divide it the categories. The ultimate thing to be enjoyed is the love of God. That's that the only thing you can enjoy is God because God can't be used for anything. God is useless, ultimately. Mm -hmm. Then the most useless things in our world, babies, friends, art, books, lap dogs. <laughs> these are these are things that hopefully we can use and enjoy. But when he says use there, he only means for the love of God. Okay. And then at the very bottom third category would be the things that we use. Those are, you know, telephone books. I don't know that anybody uses that anymore, but that's yeah. the first thing that came to mind. Um, yeah, a shovel. You know, <laughs> yeah, we use instruments. We use yeah. uh, instruction manuals. We use things like that. We don't mm -hmm. enjoy them. They, they aren't ends in themselves. Yeah. And so it, in, enjoyment is a question of um, things that are, that are an end to themselves. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so spiritual reading points us to that which doesn't point to anything else. Absolutely. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. Well said. You said it better than I. I felt like I just walked around it, but um, I wrote it probably, hopefully very clearly. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So clear. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> so that's why I was able to summarize it so well. <laughs> there you go. Because I haven't spent quite as much time thinking about it as you have. So it's it's easier to summarize things when you haven't thought about them all that much, right? I actually agree with that 100%. <laughs> yeah, that's my um, that's what I have to contribute to the world uh, in this podcast is reading very quickly through a book and then saying what I remember. 
<laughs> it's a good gift. Thanks for giving it. Um, now, how does I remember from experiment and criticism, Lewis talks about receiving a book before you start doing stuff with it, mm-hmm. before you start doing stuff to it, you have to receive it first. Right. Before you start criticizing, you have to actually receive it on its own terms. Yeah. Is re- what, What's the relationship between receiving and enjoying and using? Right. So in The Scandal of Holiness, I talked about Lewis's conception of this a little bit more because he he dis- discusses the three concentric circles in the mm-hmm. discarded image in which the outer circle if you think about a person, the outer circle is the imagination and then intellect and then will. So for him, that outer circle of the imagination is where you first receive a book or a work of art mm-hmm. or a piece of music, something along those lines. So you just receive it. You don't have to analyze and think about it yet. The mm-hmm. second circle is where you start analyzing it. Is it true? You know, what enduring questions does it ask? Does it really know what justice is, et cetera? And then your will can decide if it's telling the truth, how do I act on it? How do I live this book? So it's a it's a three-step problem in the in the human process of inter- interacting with a piece of art. So when you're enjoying a piece of art, that's that first step. And this, and Flannery says this too, right? When you're reading, she wants you just to love the story. She would just read them and just laugh out loud reading her stories. You don't have to ask the question, what does it mean yet? That's a second Mm -hmm. step. First is just read the story, enjoy the story. Then you can step aside and start analyzing it, asking it deeper questions, really getting at the meat of things. Um, But that's a second process. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, critics, critics, and readers. Mm-hmm. You draw a distinction, a helpful distinction. I say you draw a distinction. You're not the one who invented this distinction. So you you mentioned the the difference between critics and readers, um, and you're again following um, Lewis, who may or may not have been following Augustine on this. I'm, I'm not clear on that. Um. I guess first, let's. I've got a follow-up question about the writer's relationship to critics and readers. But first, let's just talk about you know make sure we're clear on the difference between a critic and a reader. Sure, and this is George Steiner who really draws this distinction between okay. critic and reader. I just found that Lewis had more helpful analogies for what this would look like, and so okay. he gives this analogy of going out into a foreign country, and I I use Italy as an example just for tangibility, but. If, if a British person goes into Italy and then complains the whole time about espresso because it doesn't taste like British tea, mm-hmm. you're missing the experience of Italy. Instead, yeah. if you go into Italy and you are among the Italians and you taste espresso for what it is and enjoy it and you go back to Britain and you carry with you the experiences of being elsewhere and be able to see your world through those Italian eyes that you've just mm-hmm. taken – it's a that's the experience of a reader versus a critic. And so you uh-huh. your world is opened more from Lewis's uh-huh. perspective or Steiner's perspective. You actually gain lenses versus narrowing and losing. Uh-huh. What if you go to Great Britain as a as an exchange student and come back with a fake British accent? What is that? <laughs> what category does that fit in? <laughs> At least you have absorbed the culture. <laughs> that's true. That's, that's a, and that's that's when the rest of us say now uh, maybe start with the, being a critic, or, or we're going to be a critic of you if you don't if you don't stop calling it a flashlight a torch. You know. Uh, okay, so 
when you, as a writer, you've written, I don't know how many books now, several. Um, what's your relationship? Do you have a relationship to the critic as you, as you write? Mm-hmm. Um, should you have a relationship with the critic or is your relationship only to the reader? No, I think that I have to practice both, but I think one is primary, one is secondary. Okay. And too often when we confuse the two, we miss both. So this is again, Dorothy L. Sayers or, or Lewis says this too. Dorothy Sayers says like, if you put the first thing before the second thing, um, then you're going to be able to get both, right? Yeah. So if you say that I'm first a reader and then I'm a critic, you get to be both a critic and a reader. Mm-hmm. If however, you exchange that relationship and what should be secondary being a critic becomes your primary, you miss the experience of being a reader. Your imagination doesn't ever become formed because you stay in that realm of the intellect. We're always judging and discerning and not really accepting what is there and loving what is there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what about as a writer? So as a writer, I think you have to go through the process of being a reader first. If you don't, I mean, that's, I think that's the human part. Secondarily, not everyone's called to be a critic, but writers are often called to be critics. And that's a, that's a second step. That's a job. Um, same with, if you look at, I, I talk about this in my book, the difference between monastics and scholastics, mm-hmm. right? From Jean, Jean Lecoeur talks about this. Monastics is the devotional practice of loving literature and taking it into the liturgy of your days. And then there are those who are called to study the Bible, and those are the scholastics. And then they bring something to the monastic life that can enhance it. But you don't start with judging the Bible and criticizing the Bible, or you will never love and you and have the Bible be a devotional part of your life. Mm. So it's just, it's it's about calling, I think. Not everyone's called to be a critic. Not everyone's called to be a scholastic. But everyone's so called to be a reader. Yeah. yeah. All right. So you are a scholastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... So what is, what's the relationship in your life? I mean, how do you remain a reader and an enjoyer of the, the works that you critique? How do you do that? Well, I, I try for that to be my first encounter with everything. Mm -hmm. Some books I'm asked to review. And so I have to almost drop that reality to enjoy the book. The first time mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. and the, and the second time through now I'm criticizing it. I'm reviewing it. I'm critiquing it. And I don't mean that all in the negative sense, but there, there sure. does become a, a different place where I've listened to what the book had to say. Now I'm speaking to the book. Now it's my time for dialoguing back. Mm-hmm. But the first time I have to listen and hear what it has to say, or my dialogue is just going to be a monologue into the void. Yeah. Right. And I think we want to have more of the, that healthy dialogue than just let, here's what I have to say. And I never really heard the argument. I never heard the story. I never listened to what the poet was actually doing. Yeah. Great. Um, okay. Let's talk about a triune vision of reading. Yeah. The, the, Did you like that? <laughs> oh yeah. I loved it. I thought it was great. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I've read Dorothy Sayers um, several times on on this on the related questions of mm-hmm. I can't even now I, I can't even paraphrase or summarize. I have it, it, I'm, I have a hard time making sense of Dorothy Sayers and her tripartite, you know, yeah, talk. Um, so talk me through 
your triune vision of reading and if you can explain Dorothy Sayers while you're at it. Sure, absolutely. So I think I I took two different things and I synthesized them and hopefully made them into my my own thing in in teaching how to read. When I was studying rhetoric, we did a lot with the rhetorical triangle. So we studied Aristotle quite a bit and it was not connected to anything Christian, though mm -hmm. it's hard to see a collection of three in one and not think <laughs> Trinity every yeah, time. Right. So the rhetorical triangle is constantly saying like the author and the reader and the text and the ethos and pathos and logos and how these are at play with one another in every experience or encounter with the text. And then reading Dorothy Sayers later, she's not intentionally grappling with Aristotle, but what she's talking about is from the writer side or the artist process, mm -hmm. trying to understand if God is our great author or a great creator or great artist, what is his process in creation that we are then a microcosm or an imitation of. And so what we imitate is God as the, the source of creative idea, the the father the son then is the energy it's the bringing into being of things right the incarnation and then the spirit is the power that gives us the ability to interact with the energy and the idea mm -hmm. and all of those three pieces go together from the writer's experience right so you have an idea in your mind you then turn it into a poem on paper but it only comes alive when it's read mm -hmm. and then the words are breathed life into right so from the then we if we take that same connection between Aristotle and Dorothy Sayers and you bring it into the experience of the reader, then you see the Trinity always at work in your reading experience as well as your writing experience. And that to me was phenomenal that you could imagine yourself reading and bringing the the text to life, and then how you living lived it out was your authoring of that. Right, you're authoring your interpretation by how you lived what you just read. Okay. But I, I feel like you skipped cool. some steps for people who haven't already read that chapter. Okay. Right. So <clears throat> again, I know it too well, and you know it so loosely. So let's yeah. <laughs> tell me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so so you you have you suggest that the reading process um, is is this sort of triune thing relationship mm -hmm. between the the author, the reader, the text, mm -hmm. ART, the art of reading. Get it? No, <laughs> I get it. You're the one who made the joke, so I'm the one who has to get it. Uh, and so the so start there. The, mm -hmm. how, how how is the author, the reader, and the text a well? It, I know you don't mean it's literally a trinity, but it's a it is something. Yeah, it's well. No, I do. I mean, I do in some sense, especially if we consider for those who believe in the Trinity. If you have this process always unfolding in what you're reading in scripture, and then you're turning that process towards reading text in some sense, I mean, I do believe there is a sense in which the Trinity is at work in your reading experience. Okay. So, All right. and so it becomes, it becomes very communal as a process. When we read books too often, we decide only one of those things matter. And I hear this all the time from people okay. Only the author matters, whatever the author's intention was. And a lot of times, even the author like loses their entire em embodiment and entire self in the conversation. And or we or we go the route of the text, whatever's in front of us is what we know. And that's it. Yeah. So, for example, I was teaching Julian of Norwich at Pepperdine yesterday. And there's so many people that were, were saying, well, let's just read the text. 
yes, but I think it matters that she's a woman in an anchor hold in 14th century. Like, I think that uh-huh. should come into our play of reading <laughs> right now. And so we have to add that part to just what she's saying, because what she's saying is coming out of who she is as an author. Okay. Those things are connected. And then the final part is she's writing for certain readers in the 14th century. So she's going to say certain things at a time, but she's also writing for us as readers. And that's going to change our reading experience. So we want to keep all of those pieces. And I, I use perichoresis because I love the idea of the Trinitarian dance in mm-hmm. which one of those things is never higher than the other. We don't say the author matters most, the text matters most, the reader matters most. We try to put all of those things into our reading experience to get the fullest understanding of what the text is doing. Mm-hmm. And so interpretation, um, the interpretation is what I as the reader bring to this process. Is that fair to say? Yeah. So the interpretation is actually a, a, a would be a next step. Okay. So I, wish I, I wish I had a whiteboard right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> So you you're as the you're in the position of reader trying to understand what the author and the text is saying to the reader. Which okay. Is, then when you're going out forward into the world, you become an author. That's your interpretation. Hmm. So then you too become a way of authoring forward. Your text then becomes the life that you're living. Okay. Forward that is being read by others. Uh-huh. And so it becomes another part of that triangle. So, I mean, it's like fractal, right? It's an infinite fractal (laughs) from what the author is doing, what the Trinity is doing at work in an author. And then, of course, the reader's experience and then what they're authoring forward. And I I mean, I think it's beautiful because it just it makes everyone authors and readers all the time. Uh All right. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I I, especially the the fractal idea. I'm going to have to to ponder that in my heart for a little while. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe next time we talk, we can talk more about the front. Yeah, hopefully it proves to be true, but I, I find it fascinating to think that way. Yeah, I love it. Okay. Um, I think we've got time to talk about the four senses or the four meanings, mm-hmm. um, literal, figurative, moral, anagogical. Mm-hmm. Um, why do I need to know this kind of I mean, you're you're going back at least as far as Augustine here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I w- I would say this is probably one of the main reasons I wrote the book. I think what okay. you just you just talked about with the art of reading, chapter six, and then chapter seven on the four senses were the primary things that I wanted to make sure people understood about how to read. Some of the other stuff I really had to get through preliminary because so many people have questions about reading that I felt like had to be answered. And of course Mm -hmm. I structured the whole book as like trying to answer these questions. And then what I hope I'm doing in the last two questions is giving you questions you may not have thought of, Mm -hmm. but the tradition used to think of, especially the Christian Mm -hmm. tradition. And by not having asked those questions, I feel like we've missed out on what reading could be and could offer us. And when it comes to those four senses, this is something that Augustine was primarily talking about with scripture, but it starts to unfold and open up over the tradition, especially by the time you get to Dante or Dorothy L. Sayers, in which they find it part of the reading experience, whether it's literature or scripture. Mm -hmm. It does open up over the tradition. But what it means is that every single reading experience, every single text has not levels necessarily, 
but senses within it. Each word has its literal meaning. Each story has its literal, this is historically what happened, or this is what the narrative, the who, what, when, Mm -hmm. where of the narrative. And then there's also this spiritual meaning of the text or figurative or allegorical meaning of the text. Those all mean the same things. And what is, what's the why of it? What's the significance of it? Mm -hmm. And we have to connect both of those things. And too often for the last 300 years, maybe 400 years, we've divided them and said, you had to choose. You either have to choose that this is historically empirically what happened. Mm-hmm. That's the meaning. That's the reading of the text or it's spiritual. It's figurative. It's allegorical. Yeah. And we forgot to tie it to what literally is mm-hmm. there. And so I'm trying to bring those things back first, okay. right? This intimate connection between literal and spiritual. Then these other two meanings of the text, the other two senses. The next one is then tropological. So once you have literally understood the who, what, when, where, Mm -hmm. and then you have the why, what is the significance, it should then affect, so what? How do I live this? Yeah. Why does this matter to me? I feel like that's the most common sense for most of us, that we assume a tropological, what does this mean to me? But we go there before we've ever really understood the literal or spiritual meaning. Mm -hmm. And if we jump straight to what does this mean for me, we might miss what it actually meant and therefore make up a false meaning for what it means for me. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think we do this a lot with taking scriptures apart into bumper stickers and, Mm -hmm. you know, reapplying it, whatever direction we want. The fourth sense I would say not every piece of literature has. I think you have to be very intentional. I think you have to be imitating the highest things to get to that fourth sense. The fourth sense is the anagogical, or sometimes it's called eschatological. I mean, the easiest way to understand it is if the world is ending, what's going to be carried forward? Like what is going forward when the apocalypse unveils all things and shows what is false and what is true, what is eternal and what is not? So writers who do this, who get to the, this matters, whether this world is as it is, or it's a new world or, you know, afterlife, whatever, whatever's next in times ideas, mm-hmm. <laughs> writers who do this, Dante, right? This, mm-hmm. these things have eschatological eternal significance, Flannery O'Connor, mm-hmm. eternal significance of her stories. And so I think sometimes we can get to that anagogical sense in our reading, and that's that's supposed to be the highest sense of things. Where is God at work in this? And God's not at work. I would say God is always at work at every piece of literature, but not every writer is intentionally bringing God to the surface. A lot of times, sometimes there's just an absence, and yeah. that, that last sense is just a void, a missing piece. Uh-huh. Leonard Connor talks about the anagogical as our participation in the divine life. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give me just another sentence or two about that? I'm not entirely sure I understand what that means when she says it's participation in the divine life. Yeah. So she's drawing on William Lynch's, um, the anagogical imagination, right? His Christ and Apollo book. And so she, she's drawing on Dante really as an example of this. Mm -hmm. What do we see that is revealed to us? that can be revealed in literature. Mm-hmm. Not every literature, not every poem is going to have a revelation. Uh-huh. To it. But she's saying that it can. Okay. And I think some of her stories, revelation being one of them, 
something is revealed that is beyond Flannery O'Connor's reason. Yeah. And that we still wrestle with because it it puts us in touch with something that maybe Flannery, it's the mystery. It's the thing that we we couldn't spell out, we can debate about, we can still question, we can still talk about. It's that piece of the puzzle. And not every piece of literature goes there. Okay. Yeah. That's helpful. Um, yeah, to 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 think we're not tr- we're not we don't have to get all four levels in everything we read. But no, we I shoot say, for three. I mean, most of the time I would say three. And even when I tell my students, like when I used to do this in a classroom, I would say, okay, the literal is what you do when you read this text at home. You you get at home and you better come into class ready to know the like <laughs> what, when, who, where, like that's what yeah. you need before you get to me. Then in our conversation, let's discuss the meaning of this, hmm. right? Then go go live it out or go write an essay about how you would live it out or why it matters. That's that third level. Uh-huh. But it's not always going to lead to prayer. <laughs> it's not always going to lead to a revelation or an epiphany or get you in touch with the divine life. It can. I think there's beautiful pieces of literature, and hopefully us we all have memories of this yeah. that have taken us there. Yeah. But it's not every time. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, thank you for giving readers that freedom not to get to the <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's an invitation that you can, which I also think is amazing. Not everything in our lives is an invitation to the divine, yeah, which is exciting to think that there are so many invitations still available. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. All right. Now I normally end with the question, who are the writers that make you want to write? But I'm gonna this is a more I asked you this last time you were here, so I'm gonna ask you a more directed version of this question. That is, why are you so excited about Julian of Norwich? Why does Julian, I, I'm assuming Julian of Norwich makes you want to write. Oh, absolutely. If so, why? <laughs> Especially the last two days, I just got done teaching her. So I'm kind of excited that okay. you are asking this today of all days. So <clears throat> Julian of Norwich, everything that she's writing, she's living. And there's not a ton of writers that I, I mean, maybe there are, and I just don't know them, that they everything they live is part of what they write and everything they write is showing you how they lived. And Mm -hmm. Julian is one of those that there's this authentic, intimate connection between what she was writing and what she was doing. If we imagine the 14th century world that she was in as a woman writing about the things of God, she could have been burned at the stake as Joan of Arc was Mm -hmm. very close to her, (laughs) to her anchor hold and Julian's anchor hold, you know, Joan is getting burned for saying she's heard from God. Yeah. And here we, here we have Julian saying, I realize that a woman is getting burned at the stake for saying she heard from God, but I heard from God and I have to write it down Mm. and not letting that stop her. That to me is amazing. I mean, that's not, you're not writing just for your reader. You're not writing just for yourself or self-expression. You are writing because you feel called to say the truth you're about to say. And it's life or death. You have to say it. I love that. I want, I want to, I mean, to me, she, she imitates Dante, right? You cannot be too timid of a friend of truth. You have to write the thing that is true. And that's what makes me want to write. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for being here, Jessica Hooten Wilson. Um, I'm excited about your new book. Thanks for writing it. Yeah, well, thanks for the conversation. I appreciate it. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. 
and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.